If you would turn now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to pick up verses 4 and 5. And while it may not seem like a Christmas message, it really is a Christmas message. I've entitled it, What in the World is, is Election? And I want to put it in the Christmas theme. I, I want to take this next couple of verses and, and ask you some pretty simple questions. If God simply chose everyone that's going to be saved and put them on one list, and he chose everyone who was going to perish eternally and put them on another list, then why would Jesus have come to this earth in the first place? Why would we even need Emmanuel? Why would Jesus have had to go to the cross? And so this all-important doctrine, which has been driving men crazy uh, since these words were first penned uh, by the Apostle Paul, in our study in the book of Ephesians, we did a little lighter treatment. I kind of want to dig in a little bit this morning. And this all-important doctrine that God's Word teaches, that we are in fact the elect of God. And the problem with us as human beings is we have to think with finite minds. Uh, we can't think outside uh, of what we really understand with the limited brain cells that we have. And so in God's perfect plan, on one hand, you have an absolutely sovereign God that has existed since before the beginning. That's why it says there in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. As far as creation is concerned, there is a beginning to creation. But as far as God is concerned, he has always been who he is. He has never been anything less than who he is. He will never be anything more than who he is. And in fact, I could say to you, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred with God? Now, in saying that, think about it for a second. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? He can't be taught anything. There's nothing that's new to him. He doesn't wake up in the morning like we wake up in the morning and go, wow, that's new news. God has always been God. God has always been sovereign. And God has always had a plan for mankind. He's never not had a plan for you and plan for me and a plan for us as people. You see, but from our perspective, we have a tough time balancing out God's sovereignty and his plans that are eternal and our own human responsibilities for those plans, for what God wants, desires, and intends. And so this morning, we look at verses 4 and 5 here in Ephesians, or excuse me, in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Would you join me and let's pray. Father... We are grateful for your word and how it speaks into our lives today. Lord, these are eternal principles that are contained uh, in your word, authored by the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago, but have been true since before the beginning. And so we pray that you'd help us with this all-important doctrine. Lord, with this very important message, Lord, that you, in fact, have chosen us. You have elected us, and you've called us into the Beloved, and so, Lord, we thank you for your promises. Pray that you would now speak to us from heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 1. Knowing, beloved brethren, before you go any further, you are the beloved brethren of God. 
the beloved brothers and sisters, the beloved family of God. God loves us. Very important that you put this into the context of love because it's an essential part of what God is trying to speak to us. Your election by God. Knowing, beloved brethren, of your election by God. Now, when you hear that, you immediately begin to think of some things. And if you take it to one extreme, you end up over here in a club that only has people that God elected. And if you take it to the other extreme, you go over here and you only have the people that God, about God, they have selected him. So on one hand, you have God's sovereignty. On the other hand, you have human responsibility. There are two principal doctrinal places that people come to land. And they're very simple. They've been arguing about this particular doctrine for several hundred years. On one hand, you have those who would be of the Calvinist bent, who would say that God's sovereignty is the central issue and we're going to hang our hats over there. And on the other hand, in response, you have those who are of the following of Jacob Arminius. So you have John Calvin on one side, Jacob Arminius on the other, and they say, well, it's man's responsibility that's more important. Today we're going to come to the middle. And here's what I would say to you. When we all get to heaven, we're going to get our doctrine sorted out. And the Lord himself is going to say, we kind of had that a little bit messed up, Jeff. And he's going to say to the Calvinists, well, probably you're a little bit heavy on the sovereign side. And you're going to say to the Arminian, you're going to, well, you were a little bit heavy on the man's responsibility side. And mm, you probably should have come together in the middle someplace. So when you get to heaven, don't be shocked. There's going to be Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Episcopalians and unaffiliated others. It's going to be all kinds of people in heaven, and they will have not agreed while they're here on this earth. But praise God, we're not saved by agreeing. Amen? Because <laughs> if we're saved by agreeing, oh boy, are we in trouble. We're saved by believing in the only begotten Son of God. And so praise the Lord for that truth. Verse 5 goes on to say, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. In other words, they lifted out. The person who believes is also the person who has changed, amen? But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. You see, today God wants you to be sure that you're a child of God. And he wants you to have the assurance that you are the child of God. And he doesn't want you wandering and go, well, I really don't know. And so if you take the human responsibility side to its extreme, you will never know if you're a child of God. Here's why. You're a sinner. You see, you're not sinlessly perfect yet while you're still on this earth yet, right? I would think, most of you anyway. So if you're still a sinner and if you're saved by your own works and you're saved by something you do and you go all the way over here, then you are in deep trouble. Because here you are at the end of your life, you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you see that semi coming at you and you think in your mind a few things you shouldn't think. And boom, the impact happens. You sinned right before you died. Whoops. So if it's all on you, you're in trouble at that place. Well, what about the other side? If it's all on God, where do you end up? 
then it has nothing to do with you. So why does it matter that you live sinlessly as best you can? Why does it matter that you ever share Christ with anyone? If God simply chooses everyone, if God puts on one list those who are saved and another list those who are not, then it makes no difference whether you ever share the gospel and thereby the Great Commission itself makes no sense at all. Why would you want to go into all the world and make disciples of all men? Because the first step of being a disciple is getting saved, amen? But if God already chose that before the foundation of the world and it's simply a list that already exists in heaven in times past from eternity, then what you do does not matter. Can you see the problem with both extremes? And unfortunately, people land in the two extremes. Because when you try and make this a mental game, When you try and make this only about logic and reason and not about faith and believing, then you end up in one extreme or the other. You have to. To be intellectually honest, if you start down a path, you have to follow it to its conclusion. If what breaks the path to one side or the other is I need to believe and have faith, and without faith it's impossible to please God, then you end up somewhere in the middle, probably not fully understanding either side completely. And can I tell you that I've had some conversation before he went home to heaven with Pastor Chuck himself. He said, Jeff, I hate this doctrine. And he wasn't saying that he hated the Bible or anything about it. But this doctrine has been troubling mankind forever. And people have fought over it and gone to war over it. It's like, well, we're not going to fellowship with those people because they believe only in God's sovereignty. Well, I'm not fellowshipping with you either because you only believe in the responsibility of man. Brothers and sisters, let us not land there ourselves. As D.L. Moody wisely put it, try and explain election, you may lose your mind, but try and explain it away and you might lose your soul. You, you, You can't get past the fact that God has always had a plan to save mankind. Always. Now, if he's God and he's fully sovereign and he can't be taught anything, he's always known everything, don't you think that he knows who's going to receive Christ? Of course he does. So in that sense, that predestination, the Lord himself absolutely does know. That election, the Lord does know. But from earth's perspective, everyone still has to believe. Everyone still has to receive. Everyone still has to choose. For without believing on the only begotten Son of God, you cannot be a child of God. That's not me speaking. That would be Jesus speaking. It's what he said. So I'm going to take his word on it. Let's dig into this a little bit. I want to just give you some facts, some things that you can think on with regard to this doctrine. First and foremost, before I get started, let me say to you that you find the doctrine of election in the Old Testament because God himself chose a people. We know them as Israel, amen? He elected them to be his chosen people. Chosen people called by his own name, by the way. So we see it even in the Old Testament before Jesus comes to this earth and before Jesus dies on Calvary's cross. So keep in perspective that God's probably thinking something slightly different than we are because there was no salvation by grace through faith in the Old Testament except that Abraham believed by faith that Messiah would come. But it hadn't happened yet. So it was something that he couldn't fully intellectually understand because he had not seen Jesus the Christ. And so he's believing in something that has yet to happen. 
It leaves belief in the midst of all of this. Some things for you. First and foremost, your election, your salvation begins with God. There in 2 Thessalonians, when we get there, God has from the beginning chosen you for salvation. That's what it's going to say in, in the second chapter of the second letter there in the 13th verse. God has chosen you. It's taught throughout Scripture, by the way. How God does that, we only get little glimpses. We're not told in full measure by God himself about the processes and procedures that he uses. But I can tell you this, what we do know about it, it's by grace and through faith. As far as you're concerned. There in John 15, verse 16, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Amen? That's pretty plain. Who did the choosing? God. Who was around first? God. So where did it begin? With God. It's not that tough to understand that part of it, amen? And it's important that we understand this because, believe it or not, God was around before you and all of the rest of us in three persons. So election began with God. And furthermore, when you think about it, as we're studying through the book of Romans on Thursday night, when we get to chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, amen? You, You see, God had a plan for us while we were still not having a plan for God. In other words, we were busy doing life our own way, our own things, going the wrong way, and God says, I still love them, and I'm sending Jesus as Emmanuel to this earth so that they can be saved. But if I don't send him, because it was about that same Jesus that God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. So there is a necessity for both the plan from God the work that was done by Jesus the Son that comes to you by a work of the Spirit. And so it began with God. The second thing that we see, it's born out of God's love. Not for individuals in a special class, not for a certain list, not for a certain race, not for a certain nation, not for a certain people group, not for a certain denomination, It is born out of God's love for 100% of all mankind. Amen? For God so loved the world, not Calvinists or Arminians, Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Catholics. Christ came to this earth for the whole world. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should understand the doctrine of election would be saved. Your Bible doesn't have that? You must have the wrong translation. No, it says whosoever should believe on him would have eternal life. Amen? Thank you, Lord. Notice it doesn't have anything to do with you understanding only or getting the fact that God is sovereign or that you have human responsibility but that you believe on the only begotten Son of God. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You, you see, we're human beings. 
And I can tell you what human beings don't have. We don't have 100% love for 100% of our fellow citizens of the earth. Amen? So God shows us through his own son what it's like to love everyone. God desires for all men to come to the knowledge of repentance. Amen? Now, if he should desire something and do nothing about it, what does that make him? Mean, evil, capricious, vile. I would say if, it, it's much like you would do for your children at Christmas time. They, tell you, they, they give you the Christmas list. You tell them, well, I'm going to get most of these things on here. And when they get there, you know, there's rattlesnakes and stuff in boxes. It'd be the same, wouldn't it? In a much, much lesser way. But if you're children who desire good gifts and they tell you what those, you know, Dad, I, I would like this, and you give them something and kill them, that wouldn't make you loving at all, would it? So if God hangs salvation over your head and says, I desire for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of repentance, and then says, sorry, not saving you because you're on the wrong list. That would make him evil. That would make him the author of evil. And God, according to your Bible, John's letters, God is love. Simple statement. So if God is love, he can't do anything that's unloving. He can't do anything that's hateful and spiteful. He can't make classes of people, some that are saved and some that are damned, and say, well, I'm sorry, but you just, you know what, your number came out in the wrong place. Everything he does, he does because of love. God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet still actively sinning, Christ died for us. That's his grace. That's his mercy. That's his goodness. A third thing. It involves faith. Your election has to have the element of faith. As far as you are concerned, you must believe. It's not an option. You don't get it by osmosis. You're not saved because your parents are saved. You're not saved because you have friends that are saved. You're saved because you choose to believe in the only begotten Son of God. That's the only way you can be saved. So it is not 100% just simply the sovereign acts of God. So that election, think about this. Do any of you ever know anybody who was ever elected without first announcing their plan to run? Do any of you ever know someone who was elected to office for no reason at all? Wait, don't answer that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Trying to break, break it up a little bit. You're looking like you got brain overload out there. No, there's a reason that we elect people, right? They have some qualification or something that goes on, but it still requires the electoral process. Amen? So for us, pretty simple process, believe and you'll be saved. So you have to have faith. What does Jesus say? Look at that passage there in John 8. It's very simple. He said to them, look, you're from beneath. I'm from above. You're of this world. I am not of this world. And therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's Jesus. He's not saying you need to understand election. He's not saying, look, you're, are you on the list? 
He's not reminding people, well, you really need to work this out. He says, you need to believe that I am he. That's pretty simple. You have to have faith. That's why the writer of Hebrews makes it so simple. It is impossible to please God without faith. You can't. You can't be pleasing in God's sight without some faith. A fourth thing. It involves the entire trinity. The election that God is speaking about here in this passage involves the entire trinity. Let me help you. People say, whoa, what does that matter? It's very simple. We have God the Father who is God, amen? We have God the Son who is Jesus, amen? We have God the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. All three are involved in the process, but can I tell you that they were involved at different times? Check this out. God the Father had a plan before the foundation of the world. That's what your Bible says. So from God the Father's perspective, you were the elect before the foundation of the world. Why? Because he's always chosen to save mankind. So from his perspective, eternity passed. How about Jesus the Son? That occurred about 2,000 years ago, did it not? So from his perspective, in my life, I became that elect one when Jesus said from Calvary's cross to tell us die, it is finished. So from God the Father's perspective, eternity passed. Jesus being God certainly would have known about that, but from Jesus' own perspective, he came to this earth to become the one and only Son of God in human flesh right here on this planet about 2,000 years ago, and he died in my place. So from his perspective, it became a reality when he died and gave his life for mine. How about the Holy Spirit? Check this out. From the Holy Spirit's perspective, which was not in me, I'll use my own life, in April of 1968, I'm sitting in a crusade in Elkhorn First Baptist Church, and I hear the message preached, and an invitation is given from the Holy Spirit's perspective, because the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and of righteousness. I understood I was a sinner. I needed a Savior. From the Holy Spirit's perspective, about 50 years ago, I gave my life to Jesus. All three, those are different times. Eternity passed, 2,000 years ago at the cross, and about 50 years ago in El Cajon. So what was it? Was it eternity past? Uh-huh. What was it? 2,000 years ago? Yes. What was it? About 50 years? Yes. It was all three. Now, see, as a human being, well, it's got to be one or the other. No, it's not. Because God had the plan from time past. Jesus Christ came to this earth to make sure that plan was carried out. And I needed to believe on the only begotten Son of God in order to be saved. That's the election process. It took a long time. Started in eternity. Had a pivotal event 2,000 years ago at Calvary. And it also took me believing. It takes the whole trinity. And you know what will happen if you actually understand this, it's going to change your life. It's going to change your life. It's going to change you as a saved person. And we see that in this first chapter. In verse 3, we saw faith, hope, and love coupled together. We see that multiple times, by the way, in Scripture. But faith, hope, and love, look what they do for you. When we get to the next set of verses, in verses 9 and 10, we're going to see this. You see, your faith helps you to turn from idols. It takes you from the old man to the new man the old woman to the new woman. It takes you from where you were to where you're going to be. But it takes faith to do that. 
God's seen it forever. He knows that he's going to give you the gift of faith, but you still have to walk in that faith, don't you? That's why we call that a transformational thing. You're being transformed day by day into the image of Jesus. That's something that's here. That's something that's now. That's something that requires that you walk in faith. How about that labor of love? You see, you used to serve the world, the flesh, and the devil. You used to serve the world system. But you turned from the fault systems of this world and you turned to Christ and so now you're serving the true and the living God. So you have different priorities in your life. You see, that's what happens to you. All of a sudden you're doing these things. You, you, you go from being yourself-centered and man-centered to being God-centered. You, you turn from the things of this life to the things of the next life. And so you have love for the things of the Lord. Before I was a Christian, you know what I loved? Me. And probably most of you would say the same thing, if you're honest. Matter of fact, we actually still kind of sort of love us, don't we? Paul said that, by the way, writing about husbands and wives. For who doesn't love his own self? You do. You're supposed to. There's a part of that that's actually something you should do. But you see, what happens is that love becomes an eternally fixed love an eternally focused love. And now all of a sudden that love isn't just you and your little sphere, your little world. You start to love the things that God loves. You also start to hate the things that he hates. And then the third step of that, you have faith, you have love, you have hope. Now you have an eternal focus, amen? You start to look towards things that are beyond this world. That glorious appearing of our great God and King, that's why he's going to talk about that in this book. It's like instead of worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow, I'm more concerned about what's going to happen when I exit this planet. Who will I have affected for Christ? What will have been the result of me being here? You see, all the sovereign acts of God mean nothing to me personally unless I'm engaged in the work of the Lord. You see, I have to take my human responsibility and say, God, you, you chose me. You knew. You stepped out of eternity and into time. And I've received you. Now let that reception mean something while I'm still here. Because God didn't create you for futility. He created you for fruit. Not for endless babbling but for the goodness of the gospel going forward into a world that desperately needs Christ. That's why the Great Commission is to go ye therefore into all the world and make Calvinists. No, it's not, right? Or Arminians. It's to go make disciples. The way you become a disciple is you believe on the only begotten Son of God. Not understand doctrinal issues. I know very few pastors that will tell you that they will defend this particular doctrine and they go, man, I'm just totally satisfied with what the Lord just you know, gave me on that subject. It's a tough one. It's a hard one. But you know what? I can look around and I can see that that gospel message has changed lives. And so I know it's real. Though I may not be able to articulate every single fine point, I can look at you and say, It worked. I can look at my own life and say, it worked. The gospel's at work in me. Because my focus is faith, hope, and love. Not me. 
you see a note to you, a note to us, a note to self, whom God chooses, God changes. So if he's chosen you, (laughs) then there's going to be change. And if there hasn't been change, then you need to ask yourself whether you've taken your side and chosen him. You see, we begin to live out these things. Instead of them just being a doctrinal thing that we talk about, they become a way that we live. Before I I step into this next little hornet's nest of doctrinal issue, I want to be very, very, very careful, and I want to be extremely clear. No one goes to heaven because they understand a doctrine like election. Anyone who ever will grace the glories of heaven will have gotten there by faith, resulting in grace, justification of your sin by God's merciful acts of his own doing upon your life so that you get to go to heaven. It's not because you understood something. That would be a work. But we're saved by grace and through faith. Amen? And that's not of ourselves. We're given that faith. It's a gift of God. That's how you get saved. You believe. So before I step into this next hornet's nest, and I, and, I, and I take a very specific doctrinal bent, because it's the most common. And very often, we actually, when we do like harvest crusades and evangelistic things, you may see some folks that stand outside those events with signs, and, and it usually says, like, why are you here doing this, and you're not, nobody's going to come to Christ because it's already been decided. Those are what we would call a, a hyper-Calvinist view, or somebody who's way over here on God's sovereignty. I love my Calvinist brothers and sisters, and you're going to be in heaven with them. Okay? And on the other side of this, you, you have your Arminian brothers and sisters. I, I talked to several people who said, yeah, I used to go to my Assemblies of God, and I had to get saved every week. Why? Because they believed that everything rested in their own actions. So it was heavily weighted towards the human responsibility side. And they're miserable. It's like every time you think so. It's like, oh man, I'm back to hell again. (laughs) And over here, I'm special. Because I'm on the list. Because God chose me. Brothers and sisters... Neither view is correct. But let me take uh, this side, the sovereignty side, just for a moment. Make no mistake, I love my Calvinist brothers and sisters, okay? We're going to see them in heaven. Corey Tenboom, who many of you know, Dutch Reformed Calvinist. But let me just talk a little bit. You see, if you happen to be on that side of God's sovereignty, which is an easier side to be on, quite frankly, because it doesn't require that you do anything. God just chose you. When you start to run through the five points of of Calvinism, the acronym TULIP is what you come up with, total depravity. You have unconditional election. That's the one that we're going to talk about a little bit. Limited atonement. In other words, Christ didn't die for everyone. He only died for the elect. Ouch. That kind of bothers me a little bit. That means that when Jesus said it is finished, he only died for the one thief, not the other thief. That's a basic way to understand that. Irresistible grace. I believe God's grace is irresistible. When you hear of God's grace, if you can resist that, there's something seriously not right. And perseverance of the saints. In other words, you need to kind of keep moving on. Amen? 
Now, most of those things you would look at them and go, eh, I'm kind of okay with that. But here's the one that we always get tripped up on. And I always have people say, well, I'm a three-point Calvinist. Well, you can't be a three-point Calvinist. You can't be a four-point Calvinist. You need to be a five-point Calvinist, and here's why. The five points all hang on each other. You take one out, the whole thing falls apart. And so if you truly believe in unconditional election, let me share with you what John Calvin himself wrote. And the reason I'm saying this is to only illustrate the extreme. There are many of my Calvinist brothers and sisters who would say, I don't even believe that myself. Matter of fact, I personally believe that John Calvin was not a Calvinist. I, I think he probably got to the end of it and said, you know what, maybe that was a little bit off there just a hair. Because here's what he said. And this is directly from his Institutes of Christian Religion, book 3, chapter 23. Not all men are created with a similar destiny. Really? What does that actually mean? Well, he defines it. But eternal life is foreordained for some. And eternal damnation for others. Every man, therefore, being created for one or the other ends, we say he is predestined either to life or to death. Now, when you hear that, it kind of sounds unfair, doesn't it? Does it sound very loving to you? Does it sound like it emanated from a God who loves everyone? Or does it sound like it emanated from God who loves some people more than he loves others? And that's the problem. You, you see, when you take these things and you try and rationalize them too much, and you try and turn it into mental gymnastics. Now, remember, John Calvin was trained as a lawyer. And so when he wrote these brilliant mind, by the way, and a vast majority of the things that he wrote, I would go, amen, brother. But there's a couple of things he kind of messed up on. And this is one of them. And unfortunately, people believe the writings of John Calvin over what your Bible plainly states. And so here's what happens. Now all of a sudden you agree that, well, you know what? Those guys were born Arabs because God never ordained them to be saved in the first place. And I have heard those exact words from some of my Calvinist brothers and sisters. Well, that's why they were born in an Arab nation. God never intended to save them. That's why they were born in that lifestyle or that sin behavior because God never, they were always the damned because God foreordained that they be destroyed. Now, if that's God, if that's true, then he's not a God of love. And I believe that he is 100% love. And so I don't believe that God has a master list of people who are going to perish and a master list of those who are going to be saved. There has to be some other explanation for that. And I believe the Bible gives us that. The Bible speaks to that. If you take this to its logical conclusion, then theoretically, you actually were saved before you got saved. If that sounds a little bit like circular reasoning and logic to you, it's because it is. Because in order to explain it, there has to be some place that you say, well, it's all on God's sovereignty. And that's why it's so important that we don't do that. Because the Bible plainly teaches that that's not the case. But you just ignore it. And in fact, when you talk to people who are of this bent, they will often only quote half of verses. Because if you quote the other half of the verse, it says something slightly different and encourages you to go the other direction. You see, if God foreordained people to be destroyed, then he cannot possibly be a God of love. 
That means he created beings with a specific purpose of knowing that they would be eternally damned. Now the flip side of that, over on this side, well, God created everybody with their own destiny in their hands, and you know what? If you've got a sin problem, you're just done. You're one of those people that has a tough time coming to terms with with your own temper. And let's make sure we get this right, folks. This is super important for us as the church to be intellectually honest with what we call sin. Because the Bible calls bitterness sin. The Bible calls anger sin. The Bible calls vanity sin. You see, and you can't enter into the presence of God with any sin. So if you're over here on this human responsibility side, you got a grip on most everything in your life, but you're still a bitter person, or you're an unforgiving person, or you're a vain person. You don't have enough ability with personal responsibility to get you all the way over there to a sovereign God. It's in the middle. And praise the Lord, that's exactly what your Bible says. Are some people really chosen to go to hell? There's no way in this universe that could possibly be the case. Does God know who will receive him and believe? Of course he does. He's God. But he also gives the freedom for everyone to make their own choice. That doesn't mean that the two are equal. It doesn't mean that it's one or the other. It means that both of them work together. It means that you have to choose to believe. And it also means that God has chosen you. And while we cannot wrap our minds around it completely, it is clearly what Scripture teaches. And this is exactly where believing comes in. And I want to leave you with this today. He has chosen us. He's chosen us as a chosen people, a called out group of people. He's chosen us in the beloved. He selected us from before time. He saw us in Christ Jesus. He he gave us faith to believe. And at a certain point in time, here's where your responsibility steps into the picture by the work of the Holy Spirit. You must believe. Otherwise, none of the statements that Jesus makes in the New Testament, his words, not mine, make any sense whatsoever. No sense at all. Nothing could be plainer. John 3, 36, he that believes on the Son hath everlasting life. Amen? Is there anything about that you don't get? You have to believe on the Son. That means you have to Believe on the Son. Now, here's the cool thing. You believe by faith. The faith is a gift. So it's not a work on your part. You're exercising the faith that he gave you in a way to say, I believe. Hallelujah. That he that believes and has not the Son has not life, but the wrath of God abides in him. That's Jesus John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because you were born in sin, you were born a sinner, and everybody needs a Savior. It's a very simple thing. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
Notice it's not some difficult theological process. It's believing, and you believe with faith that faith is a gift from God to you so that you can believe. That little smidgen of faith that comes into the mind of every human being when the gospel is presented, here's your choice, Jeff. And for me, it's like, I don't even remember what Mel preached But I remember the message that Mel Dibble preached on that night was that I was a sinner and I needed a Savior and without that Savior, I was going to stay a sinner and if I stayed a sinner, I was going to go to hell. That was pretty simple. And so guess what I did? I believed on the only begotten Son of God. Exactly as Jesus said. But you know what? If I had not believed, I wouldn't be saved. If I hadn't exercised that faith, I wouldn't be saved. It doesn't matter that God selected me. God wants me in his family. It matters that he did that, and I responded by believing. John six forty seven. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. These are all the words of Jesus, by the way. The focus of the gospel of John is a central thing. Believe. So much so that Jesus would go on to say, it is enough that you believe. Of course, in John 11, he says to the woman, he says, look, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he or she may die, he or she will live, shall live. That's a promise. Notice it doesn't say he who understands the doctrine of election. Notice it doesn't say if you belong to a certain group, or a denomination. Notice it doesn't say if you've ever, you know, gone through a biblical studies class or attended church. It just simply says if you believe. And so from God's heavenly perspective, it's quite simple. His plan in eternity past is that all people would come to the knowledge of repentance and be saved. That's his plan. His plan in Christ Jesus was Jesus made it possible for all people to be saved. Whether they believed in faith in the Old Testament times, believed in faith in his time, or believe in faith now. And in your day and time, it becomes a reality when you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So election... From God's perspective, eternity past. Jesus' perspective, 2,000 years ago. Holy Spirit's perspective, right now, today. Would you stand with me and let's pray. That's the Christmas message. That's why Emmanuel came, isn't it? That's the Christmas message. God's only begotten Son... That's why it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's the first Christmas gift, Jesus, so that we can believe. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and I, I, I just want to simply offer that gift to anyone who's here today. Maybe you came in and you, you thought that because your parents were Christians, you're a Christian. Or maybe you thought that because you're an American, you're a Christian. Or maybe you thought that just coming to church every once in a while makes you a believer. 
Well, God has a plan for your life. He's had that plan from eternity past. Jesus Christ made that plan a possibility when he said yes by giving his life in your place, taking your sin upon him at the cross. But it is up to you to believe. And I simply want to ask with eyes closed, heads bowed, if you're here today and you want to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand up right where you're standing. We're not going to have you move anywhere. We're going to pray with you right where you are. I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Anyone else? You heard, I see that hand in the back. I see that other hand in the back. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Keep your hands up if you would, please. No one looking around. I see that hand as well. Ah, thank you, God. Ah, another hand. Hands up, going up all over the sanctuary. If that's you, you've not received the best gift you'll ever get, which is Jesus in your place on Calvary's cross, and you want to make that promise to him today to walk with him and that he would exchange your sin for his righteousness. Just raise your hand. A couple more seconds. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. For those that have raised your hands, you can put your hands down. Would you please just pray with me? Pray out loud. Congregation, be praying for these that have raised their hands. Those who have raised your hands, just pray these words. Heavenly Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus died in my place. And I believe that you want to forgive me of my sins. And so I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. To cleanse me. And to make me white as wool. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus. And I truly believe on him. I'm asking you now to write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm asking you to be my Lord. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.